This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And right now, Audible.com has a special promotion for listeners of Kick-Ass Politics. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial by going to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics or click on the sponsor link on our webpage at kickasspolitics.com. This week, I'm paying tribute to the founding father of America with a few episodes exploring the real man behind the myths and the marble busts. In yesterday's podcast, I talked with author and historian John Furling about the side of George Washington that few people realize even existed, that of a calculating politician and a shrewd manager. In part two, we'll delve even further into what motivated George Washington to seek the highest office in the land, what motivated him to leave the same office eventually, and what he might make of the political landscape in America today. All that and more in just a moment. Hollywood to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. We're continuing our talk from yesterday about the political genius of George Washington. Thank you again, John Furling, for joining me to talk about George Washington's political leadership. Well, thank you very much for having me. We touched on this a little bit before, but I think Washington saw what the country needed, even if others didn't at the time. Most of the others in the Constitutional Convention favored a much weaker executive branch of government because they they were afraid that the president would turn into just another King George III. But Washington, I think, understood that the colonists had never known anything but monarchy, and they were raised on a patriarchal system of government. And as they embarked on this experiment with democracy, Washington realized that people were going to need and expect a strong president who would be a leader and someone the people could rally behind and look up to. There's a lot of talk about during the Constitutional Convention how many people favored a a much weaker executive, but he was the chair of the Constitutional Convention, and so everyone was speaking to him when they had to get up to speak. And so it led to, even though he didn't say very much, as we we talked about – Um, It led people to, when they were creating the executive branch and deciding what powers the executive would have, they were doing it with Washington in mind. Yeah, I I think that that's that's true. He uh, and they hoped that he would would be the president for a very long time, uh, you know, 15, 20 years or so. It it didn't turn out that way, but I think that was the hope of a great many people at the the Constitutional Convention. And and remember, too, that uh, Washington, in a sense, I mean, he he was kind of the president without title during the Revolutionary War when he was commander-in-chief of the Army because there was – there was a, the only national body was the Continental Congress. There was no no executive authority, and so Washington 
was the only uh, person who had something of a national outlook as commander-in-chief, in where all of the congressmen were representing their states or local districts or, or whatever, and uh, that Washington even had to meet with uh, uh, French uh, envoys who came over uh, at, uh, during the uh, the war. So in a sense, he he was a diplomat, chief diplomat uh, during the the war. So I think at the Constitutional Convention, they they saw him as um, inevitably the first president and somebody who had a good deal of executive experience already. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's true. One of the things that I think made him uh, such a good manager and a good executive was his ability to kind of take opinion, somewhat like Lincoln, to take opinions from different places and then step back and then make a decision. That's that's right. I, I think that's that's true. He he uh, he had a cabinet. Probably no no president has ever had. Uh, a more distinguished cabinet. I mean, he, here was John uh, or uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton uh, in that cabinet as Secretary of State and Secretary of the Treasury, uh, respectively. And and Washington would his style as president was, I think, kind of a carryover uh, from his experience. Uh, as commander of the the army, when uh, in fact Congress had mandated when he became um, uh, commander of the army that he was to consult his officers uh, about every major decision. So they would have what they call councils of war, and uh, he he brought that to the presidency too by by uh, convening the cabinet on a regular basis, presenting the major problems to the cabinet. He would have the cabinet members write out uh, lengthy uh, memorandums uh, outlining their position on things, and then Washington would read those uh, opinions, uh, say, for example, whether he should sign uh, the, the bill creating the first bank of the United States. Uh, he would read those opinions and then uh, take his time thinking about it and and make his make his decision. And he, even in fact, when uh, war broke out between France and uh, England, about three years into his presidency, he actually left the capital, went back to Mount Vernon and stayed there for about a month, spending his time away from the Capitol, uh, giving thought to what, what policy should the United States adopt. Should, should we honor our alliance uh, with France, or should we remain neutral in the European conflict, or exactly what, what should we do? And, of course, he had, a, he had something of a luxury in his time uh, that modern presidents – don't have, and that is he didn't have to make instant decisions. Uh, it, it was a very different world in the 18th century because it took so long for for word to get across the Atlantic. Right. Well, I'm sure that that must have frustrated some people. One of the other things kind of part and parcel of his gift of silence is people talk about how if he didn't want to answer a question, he just wouldn't. <laughs> and I can't think of many politicians that do that. And uh, 
I guess on a larger political level, I, I can think of uh, the Jay Treaty with Britain at the end of the war, how uh, Congress wanted to see all the papers related to the negotiation of the peace treaty with Britain, and he just outright refused. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And he, well, he regarded it as an executive uh, matter. Con the Senate did have to ratify the treaty, but uh, he he regarded it as an executive uh, matter, and uh, so he, you know, he he would make his decision and what he thought was uh, uh, the best interest of the country. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. What are some of the other things that maybe we haven't covered here that are some of his great attributes as a politician? Well, I, I think uh, other than the one that I mentioned where uh, he convinced people that he was above politics was that uh, Washington came into office with uh, a stature that uh, virtually no other president has, has ever brought to the office. I mean, he, he was revered as uh, the victor in the uh, in the Revolutionary War, and uh, a person who had served with honor, who had sacrificed. Uh, there was no hint of scandal uh, about his behavior in eight years uh, during the during the war. Um, he he hadn't always succeeded as a general, but as John Adams said, Congress. Uh, managed to keep some of Washington's mistakes hidden from the the public. So he came in with this this um, almost Olympian uh, kind of of stature, and that certainly uh, I think uh, uh, made him a, a great leader. It, it caused people to want to follow him and to rally around him. And in fact. Um, uh, toward the end of his first administration, Washington told both Jefferson and Hamilton that he he was going to hang it up. He had had enough. He wanted to go back home. And both Jefferson and Hamilton uh, wrote to Washington and said pretty much the same thing, that if we have you to hang on to, we can hang together. That is, the country can stay together. It's essential that you serve a, a second uh, term, and, and I think too. There, I remember a comment that John Kennedy uh, supposedly made one time, where he said that uh, to be a great leader, one must uh, 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 have people both love and fear him. And I think the Washington. Uh, I think people responded to Washington in, in that way too. That people loved Washington respected Washington, revered Washington, but there was also uh, a fear of, of Washington. He, he was a guy that you didn't want to, to cross. People had crossed him during the Revolutionary War. Um, there was a movement uh, around 1778, in fact, to dump Washington and replace him with, with General Horatio Gates. And, and pretty much everybody who was involved in, in the move to dump Washington uh, really paid for it. They, they lost their reputation. And, and from that point on, I think it, it, it became pretty clear that it was kind of the third rail of American politics to, uh, to, to cross 
Washington. So I, I think there there was some some fear of Washington, and and I think it, it I mean it, you can see it in in Jefferson that um, Jefferson, for example, left Congress. Uh, at right after the Declaration of Independence uh, was was approved and independence was voted on, he went back to Virginia and he serves in the Assembly in Virginia, and he turned down uh, Congress's request to go to Europe as a as a diplomat and whatever. And in 1779, Washington wrote a letter to George Mason, his neighbor in Virginia. He didn't write it to Jefferson, but he wrote it to Mason, knowing that Jefferson would get it. And uh, he says to Mason, where is Thomas Jefferson when the country needs people of his ability serving? And uh, as soon as, as Jefferson heard that, Jefferson knew uh, he had to do something. He he couldn't afford to to win the uh, disfavor of Washington, and so he agreed to become the governor of Virginia and serve two very difficult years in that that position. So I think Washington uh, was a, was something of an extraordinary leader because he inspired uh, love and he inspired. Uh, fear, but also because, as, as we've already said, because of these these other things, he he was kind of remote. He was uh, seen as virtuous, as honest, uh, 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 and uh, as thoughtful, and above all, convinced people that the decisions that he made were not narrow partisan decisions but decisions made in the in the national interest i am not saying that washington wasn't partisan i i think right. he, he really agreed more with the the federalists as time went on in his administration but i think he succeeded in convincing people that he he um, was nonpartisan and that the decisions that he made uh, were made solely in the national interest and I think largely they were made in the national interest. Well, when you hear presidents and former presidents talk about their time in the White House, invariably they all say the same thing, uh, that it's that first day in office when it really hits you, that it's about the good of the country, not about your particular party. And there's a huge sense of responsibility to do right by the office of the president and by the country. So I can't even begin to imagine what that sense of responsibility must have been like for George Washington being the very first one and having to set the bar for everyone else who would ever come after him. Well, I think that's a good place for us to take a quick break here, and then I'll be back to talk more with John Furling on the political genius of our founding father. Back in a moment. This portion of the podcast is sponsored by Fiverr. That's F-I-V-E-R-R. Now, folks, you've heard me rave about Fiverr before. Fiverr is the world's largest online marketplace for services with over 100,000 categories all offered for a fixed base price of just $5. Logo design, business consulting, marketing, business cards and stationery, web design, translation, transcription, proofreading, legal consulting, and just about any other service you can possibly imagine, all offered at a base price of just $5. 
In fact, you know the announcer who does our intro to Kick-Ass Politics? I found him on Fiverr, a professional radio announcer to do our intro for just five bucks. And right now, when you go to kickasspolitics.com and click on the Fiverr ad on our sponsor page, you'll be showing your support for the show and you'll get some great offers on services tailored to your needs. Whatever you need done, find it on Fiverr. If you like Kick-Ass Politics and you want to keep us on the air, then please support the show by making a donation to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics or go to the show website and click on the donate link. Your support will help keep us producing new and even more interesting programs in the future. That's gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Now, enjoy the rest of the show. I'm back with John Furling. We were just talking about George Washington's ability as president to give at least the appearance of being above partisan politics. And when you read his letters and his speeches, he does seem to have just a, a disdain, if not outright contempt, for partisanship. I mean, it's easy for us today to bash partisan politics, but taking sides and forming alliances with others who share your values, I mean, that's been a part of politics from the very beginning. So then tell me, John, what was behind Washington's contempt for political parties? Well, I, I think at, at the time that, that there, there had been all through uh, the colonial period a sense that political parties were, were um, uh, evil in the sense that uh, they just represented narrow interest and that the national well-being would, would suffer uh, because of that. But, I mean, you know, I mean, looking back on it now, it, 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 it's, it's somewhat amazing that people at the Constitutional Convention didn't see political parties uh, emerging because, I mean, the first Continental Congress, even before the war begins, the, in 1774, the first Continental Congress had only been meeting for three or four weeks when there's the first split between North and South. They're fighting over uh, a matter of uh, uh, in, in boycotting uh, British trade and also boycotting exports to Great Britain, and that's the first split between between North and South. I mean, you, in retrospect, you can see it coming, and there are divisions in the Constitutional Convention. So it seems pretty clear in retrospect, in hindsight that political parties were inevitable, but they seemed to take people by surprise at the time. And, and uh, uh, the, the, uh, people like Hamilton made a good deal of hay out of branding Jefferson as the villain and having created uh, political parties. Well, I'm curious what he would think today. I mean, because parties are such a huge part. I mean, it, it's essential to the whole system today as we know it. I'm curious what he would think of things if he were to look at the political situation and the partisanship today, because ultimately it's really served us fairly well for <laughs> so many years. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to say to move somebody, uh, you know, from the 18th end of the right. end of the 21st century. Uh, but I, I think um, you know, I, I don't think there's any question. Washington was driven by the idea that the that we needed a strong central government that was capable of establishing 
of protecting the national security, protecting the United States from uh, the, the, the strong predatory powers in Europe at the time. And so I think from that standpoint, if he came back today, he would probably – uh, be very happy with with the fact that we spend so much money on on defense and that we are so strong and we're and we're vigilant and and uh, and, and whatever. Uh, with political parties, uh, he 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 probably I, I think would be somewhat aghast at at the behavior of of uh, uh, presidents today, and and I don't mean just Obama, but I mean presidents in general and in in the the modern age. He he came from a different age and a different time. I mean, here here was a guy who didn't shake hands with people; he bowed uh, <laughs> to. To people and uh, uh, was not good at making small talk and and whatever. So he he would have I think uh, um, been probably somewhat flabbergasted to see what what has 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 come down the road since since his time. I mean he he dies just two weeks before the 19th century begins, and he's very much a a person of the the 18th uh, century. Right. I can't picture him faring very well in a 24-hour news cycle <laughs> with bloggers and everything, scrutinizing every move. <laughs> well, I'll ask you just one more question, and this is something that I personally have always kind of wondered. We make a lot of the fact that he served two terms and then stepped down, and certainly that is a huge, huge thing to do for someone who's handed all that power. But I've always wondered how much of that was him wanting to do the right thing and to set a precedent for those who would come after him in the office, and how much of it was just Washington. I can picture him just being completely sick of politics and to a certain extent saying to hell with it. I'm going back to Mount Vernon. I want to retire. Yeah, I think it was mostly the latter. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure that, uh, you know, there were charges being made uh, that Hamilton was a monarch and and a monarchist and whatever and, and so I think probably some of it was Washington saying, well, if I step down, I'll set a precedent of short terms and that'll head off any uh, any monarchist who who's out there. But but I think more than anything, he really wanted to go home. I mean, he he had been away for eight years during the Revolutionary War. Now eight more years. As president, he loved Mount Vernon. Um, he wanted to get back there. He, he had, in fact, re- redesigned Mount Vernon and added on to it during the Revolutionary War, and hardly had an opportunity to uh, to enjoy it. And also, I think um, Washington came from a family where men tended to die at a rather early age. That half-brother, Lawrence, was 32 when he died. Washington's father, I think, was 43 or 44 when he died. And George had gotten into his early 60s by the, uh, by, by toward the end of his second term. And I think he was convinced that he just didn't have very much time left. And it turned out he actually didn't have very much time. He died about four years after he left the uh, the presidency he was 67 when he died. He lived longer than he thought he would, but but he didn't think that he had very much time left. 
And I think he wanted to get back to Mount Vernon and just enjoy himself in in uh, in, in the time that he did have and get out from under the uh, uh, the political pressures and get out get out of office. Well, he certainly, I think, earned the right to have a little R and R and finally get to retire after everything he did for us. Uh, the country wouldn't wouldn't be where we are. We might not even exist were it not for him. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really questionable whether the United States could have survived uh, if if it didn't have Washington. It, had Washington not been there to be the the first president, and and I think uh, it's uh, uh, it, uh, questionable too whether the country might, could have won the Revolutionary War without Washington as commander. I mean, there were a lot of things that went into the victory in the Revolutionary War, but I, I don't think there's anyone else who would have made uh, as good a commander of the Continental Army as did Washington. Well, John Furling, thank you so much for joining me and talking to me about George Washington. Uh, certainly more politicians could stand to be a little more like him, I suppose. Well, thank you very much for having me. I have a book coming out in May, A History of the American Revolution, that's uh, entitled Whirlwind, the American Revolution and the War that Won It. I'd love to have you back on, and let's talk about that. Absolutely. Okay, that sounds good. I look forward to it. All right. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my talk with John Furling today. And if you did, then I think you'd love his fascinating book, The Ascent of George Washington. The Hidden Political Genius of an American Icon, by my guest today, author and historian John Furling. And right now, you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be The Ascent of George Washington by my guest today, John Furling, or any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click the sponsor link on our webpage for your free audiobook download. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you can automatically get new episodes as they become available. And if you have a minute, then leave us a review on iTunes. Both of those things help a lot with our iTunes rankings and our advertisers. And if you really want to help out and keep us strong, then please support the show by making a donation to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or go to the show website and click on the donate link. Producing a show like this isn't cheap, folks. We've got studio rental, equipment, sound engineer, etc., and your support will help cover some of those costs and hopefully even allow us to produce more new episodes per week. So help us out. That's GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or you can go to kickasspolitics.com and click on the donate link. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com or leave a voicemail on the toll-free listener hotline at 844-KA-POLITICS. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics.
This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.